I noticed something today. Three of the best picture nominees for 1946 were Laurence Olivier's Henry V, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, and William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives. The war had been over nearly two years by the time of the ceremony in April of 47. Of course, the world was immeasurably changed by the war, and entertainment, the arts if you'd prefer, reflected that change as well. The movies of the Golden Age, concurrent with the Great Depression of the 1930s, necessarily changed when the country that was their greatest, wealthiest, most prolific producer finally entered the war after Pearl Harbor. But another change upon the end of the war was as dramatic. Henry V, produced, starring, and directed by Olivier at Winston Churchill's instruction, was in fact filmed in 1944 morale-boosting propaganda for the British public. Wonderful Life and Best Years, though, are genuine post-war films with post-war themes. Wonderful Life does share some of the characteristics of Frank Capra's pre-war movies, such as Meet John Doe, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and You Can't Take It With You. Even the plot device of a main character's potential suicide seen in both John Doe and Mr. Smith is revisited in It's a Wonderful Life. But it is worth noting that the character of George Bailey is played by Jimmy Stewart. In his first job since returning home from the European theater where he had flown 20 sorties in a B-24 over Germany. In the best years of our lives, it's Dana Andrews' character Fred Derry who returns from similar duty as a bombardier in a B-17. The plot interweaves the homecoming stories of airman Fred with two other men from the same Midwest town a middle-aged infantryman played by Frederick March, and a young sailor who lost both hands in the Pacific, played by Harold Russell, who in fact lost his hands in the war. Stewart was reticent to talk about his experiences in the war, though the post-traumatic stress disorder we see Fred Derry experience was something Stewart himself knew firsthand. Highly decorated and promoted in his time as a bomber pilot, he was in fact eventually hospitalized with nervous exhaustion in 1944, flying no more missions in the war. On his return, he stated he would not be appearing in any war movies, and he never did. The Best Years of Our Lives looks at a society at the end of a war in which some 16 million men and women served in the armed forces and asks the question, what do we do with them now? For Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life offered a simple answer. He would do what he had done before. Thirty-seven at war's end and with a major Hollywood career already in progress, this was no surprise. The same was true for the other stars who had served, among them Clark Gable and Henry Fonda. Even James Cagney, who was beyond the age of the draft, but went overseas to entertain the troops as a song and dance man. But these were the stars of Before the War the sons of the silent age, long known and loved, but of course getting older. 
Winning the war, not least due to the development of a technology that resulted in the atomic age, meant that there was a new energy at play in America and abroad. Women had served in the military or had joined the workforce to replace all the men who had gone in. The U.S. forces were on the road to desegregation, ahead of the societal curve. The need to develop industry so rapidly to support the war effort meant America was shifting to a more urban place. And Hollywood, as ever, needed to keep churning out its product and to keep feeding the studio machine with new faces, younger talent. Where were the Stuarts and Gables and Fondas of the new era? Well, a hell of a lot of them were in the armed forces. Here's the thing. What the best years of our lives detailed, Franklin Roosevelt saw coming. He knew millions of servicemen would return home looking for jobs, wanting to start families or continue where they had left off, maybe get an education, own a home. The war played a part in getting America out of the Depression. Roosevelt didn't want to see the country return to that when it was over. He passed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, the original G.I. Bill. Among other things, it allowed millions of men and women who had served to go to a school of their choosing, regardless of the field. Not a few of these former soldiers, sailors, marines, and airmen would put their G.I. Bill money to use in acting school. That's right, acting school. Thousands of these guys left the service and signed up for classes and programs to study acting for the stage or on camera. It's a remarkable moment in time and one that can't happen again. The Hollywood studio system is gone. The draft is over. But consider the guys who became household names after the war, in the movies of Hollywood or in New York doing stage work, or getting into the new medium of television, where the acting was every bit as live then as Broadway. Tony Curtis, Rod Steiger, both from the U.S. Navy, studied acting at the New School in New York on the G.I. Bill. Walter Matthau, U.S. Army Air Force, New School. Paul Newman, U.S. Navy, Yale Drama and the Actors Studio. Jason Robards, Navy, American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Ernest Borgnine, Navy, Randall School of Dramatic Arts, Hartford, Connecticut. Jack Klugman, Army, Carnegie Mellon Drama in Pittsburgh. James Arness, Army, Bliss Hayden School in L.A., his brother Peter Graves, Air Force, University of Minnesota. Richard Boone, Navy, Actors Studio. Russell Johnson, the professor on Gilligan's Island, Air Force, Actors Lab in L.A., and so on. And a few years later, the conflict in Korea would increase the roles of the services again, and not a few vets would study acting on the G.I. Bill. Clint Eastwood, Martin Milner, David Jansen, all three knew each other from the Army while stationed at Fort Ord in California in the early 50s, and all would go on to successful careers in TV and film. Despite the celebrity that can characterize an acting career and the ceaseless elevation of screen stars to the level of royalty, society in general tends to look down on the profession and has done for centuries. In the Dark Ages, acting troops were viewed with mistrust. Christian burial denied to actors in some countries. And yet the United States, still a fairly repressed society coming out of the Prohibition era, the Great Depression, and the biggest war ever, passed something like the G.I. Bill, which encouraged millions to study, and with little restriction on the subject matter. It was broad-minded, liberal in the best sense of the word, 
an investment in the country's human capital. And aside from being a boon for the education industry, must have paid off huge dividends for the culture at large. It's a big change from how the country's veterans were treated after World War I. Bonuses for wartime service were not to be paid out for 25 years, resulting in a deadly riot in Washington in 1932 when out-of-work vets demanded they be paid their bonuses ahead of schedule. There's no major thesis here. Just taking some delight in the idea that a burgeoning superpower can act in the best interest of its own culture, and that so many young people who had learned the lessons of hardship and duty early on, who quite possibly were witness to or even participants in feats of destruction, great and small, that they would choose to pursue the arts. In Homer's Odyssey, Tiresias instructs Odysseus to take one of his ship's oars inland and walk far from shore, until he comes to a place where no one knows what the object is for. The need to move forward, putting a terrible time behind you, is ancient and universal. To want to replace a duty for destruction with an exploration of what it is to be human, to create, is inspiring. And if you care, the winner of the Oscar was the best years of our lives. Pretty Much, Episode 15, Only a Bill. Written and read by Scott Clarkson. Music by Garner Firebird. <laughs>